0: As they came through the Red Sea, which was a miraculous event. It would have been that that kind of thing didn't didn't happen in our day. Like people aren't just going out and parting the ocean or anything. It would have been similarly miraculous in their day. Um, They come through it. God had made this huge provision for them. And he brings them out into this desert, to this wilderness. There have been tons of things going through their mind as they walked out there. God, that was awesome but are you going to continue to be with us now now as we face this wilderness this desert where there isn't much out there? Um, when when I was growing up, uh, some of you may can relate to this, I made an attempt to run away from my parents. We got any runaways out there? Yeah, a few hands awesome. Um, what I did is I ran to a field behind our house, And on the way, I found a uh, half-smoked cigarette. Went ahead and picked that up and finished it, which was awesome. Um, (laughs) Not a high point. Uh, I have a friend who wanted to run away from his parents. And uh, he went and hid in their garbage bin outside their garage, right? Um, Because that would really show his parents that they were mean or something. And he lasted a few hours. And um, I remember talking to him about it, which was so ridiculous that he did that. Smoking cigarettes was also ridiculous since they were someone else's. But um, anyway, and he said, you know, I just couldn't do it because I remembered that what my parents were giving me wasn't that bad. <laughs> like they gave me a place to sleep and they were giving me food. Although I was mad at them, they still provided for me. I think about that ridiculous stories um, because as is the people of Israel were coming out of this great provision, my God, this awesome thing, And on the face of this wilderness, and now they started getting hungry, the thought would have been, God, what are you doing? Why are you treating us this way? Why are you being mean? Or why aren't you providing for us? And we have to know this one thing. I'm just going to tell it to you on the front end. That God leads his people to places of desert, to places of wilderness where we don't exactly know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen next. We can't see at all. He leads His people to those places to teach them one thing. So that He can show them one thing. He wants us to feel our hunger. He wants us to get that we really are dependent on Him for so much. And that's exactly what He's doing with the people in this passage. He wants them to feel their hunger. So look, if the, if the essence of what the Bible calls sin is turning from God's provision of what He gives us and turning toward ourselves to try and figure it out on our own or try to provide for ourselves or to turn to other people and try to get from them what only God can fully give us. And what God is saying is that will never satisfy you. Nothing else can fill you deeply because nothing else was created to. That only He was created to do that. Only He can satisfy, satisfy and provide. And so it's in that place of wondering will God provide as we feel our hunger that it's like my friend in the garbage can where you realize that what God offers us is exactly what we most need and want. We may not feel that way at the moment, but what God offers us is exactly what we need and want. So the three things we're going to see tonight in this passage is first we're going to see kind of look at their grumbling because as they went out into the desert, Um, and they got hungry, the people started grumbling against Moses, which was really their grumbling against God. They were starting to get mad with him. Secondly, we're going to see how God purposefully provides, how he provides with a purpose. And thirdly, we're going to look at the plan to remember God's goodness. So first, uh, the problem with grumbling. So the people of Israel get out into the desert um, and immediately... There's actually a chapter before this they got thirsty and they were grumbling about that and now they're hungry and they're grumbling about that. God, what are you doing? Why aren't you going to provide for us? Now we have the benefit of sitting on this side of that event and we can look back and say, dude, he just parted the sea for you. are You really You really don't think he's going to provide for you now? He just did that amazing thing. Like, God's going to hook you up, you know? Um, but I would suggest that we're... We actually do it a lot, too. Our grumbling may look different, but we do it, too. Uh, A guy named Paul Tripp, who's a famous author and speaker, um, not famous like LeBron James, famous, but kind of uh, in Christian circles, I guess, um, famous, uh, he talks about grumbling like this. He says that grumbling is that that drone of a discontented heart. You know, just that... Like my home home speakers, or my speakers at home, my home theater, home theater is what they call them. Uh, I've got this big subwoofer, and um, the moment you turn it on, it just does that. It's just this low, annoying hum, and we don't use it, and it's frustrating. What Paul Tripp is saying is that grumbling is like that, except in our lives, just that low-level discontentment. Okay, fair enough. But how do I know if I'm actually doing that? Because it's hard. It's easy for me to see and hear when my speaker does it. But how do I know if, if I'm actually doing that? How do you know if grumbling is something you're doing? Um, another guy named Mike Wilkerson gives these three questions that he kind of asks to help diagnose that. And the first one is this. Um, what makes you anxious? And the second one we'll see in a second is um, what makes you want to escape? And thirdly, what makes you angry? So what makes you anxious? Um, look, there are those paralyzing kinds of anxiety that some of you deal with or have dealt with, and some of you are on medication for and praise the Lord for um, medication for that stuff. Um, you know, but it's the real overwhelming like panic attacks in the fetal position and that kind of thing. Um, and that's serious. That's real, that's real anxiety. But there's also, I think, a more subtle kind of anxiety that's a form of grumbling. It's really most of these things are pretty socially acceptable, but we do a lot of them. Think about this. What makes you overanalyze something? You know that kind of anxiety where you can't let something go. You just look at it from every possible angle to figure out what's wrong, either with you or with something you're working on, or a situation you're involved with, or a relationship, and you just overanalyze it to death. Or in what ways do you find yourself being overly cautious? Right, there's, there's normal precautions that we take in life, And where are those places where you just it's just too much? It's just too much to enter in, so you're always you're kind of standing on the periphery of the thing looking in, and you're cautious to get involved. And that kind of produces this low-level anxiety, which is kind of a form of grumbling and not trusting what God has for you. Where are you hypersensitive? When do you find yourself tending toward perfectionism and just not being able to give it up and actually hand the project in. Or not being able to sit with the tension of a relationship that's just not working out awesomely. Is that a word? Um, Where do you worry? What makes you worry? that these kind of anxieties, and no one really is going to be able to look at those things and say, oh, obvious, that's terrible, that's this awful, heinous sin in your life. You need to not do that. This is just kind of the stuff of life. We all have these things in one way or another, and we'll see if they're kind of a subtle form of grumbling. You remember the last time you had a conversation uh, that you wished would have gone differently? Maybe with a girl or with a guy or with a professor or with a group, something. And you just replay that conversation over and over in your mind. And you just analyze the heck out of it. I mean, it's just, oh gosh, I wish I wouldn't have said that, or I wish I wouldn't have raised my hand then, or I wish I wouldn't have done this, or I wish I wouldn't have wore that. Or, you, we do this stuff all the time. I do it basically every Tuesday night when I walk home. There's that lonely walk to the car, and it's like, well, wish I, said that, or, I wish I would have said that. I wish I would have said that. Um... Look, Israel in this passage is doing the same thing. The food is scarce, they're hungry, they don't know if God is going to provide. But he comes down and says, I'm going to provide for you every single day. And on the on the sixth day, I'm going to provide for you for two days, so that on the seventh day you can rest and not go have to go out and gather food and all this stuff. So God said that He would provide for them, yet it was in that it was out of control. Think about it. They literally they would wake up the next morning and they would get rid of whatever they had at the end of the day, throw it away. Imagine that would be pretty hard after you've been so hungry. It's like, no, I just want to like put it in the pantry. But God said, no, throw it away and I'm going to provide for you the next morning. They were, it was out of their control. and The tendency for them to become anxious welled up in them. And so some of them, what they do? They kept it. And it stank. And it says it had worms in it, and probably the green fuzzy stuff like that's in my coffee pot when I don't clean it. You know, they didn't trust what God said. That really happens. (laughs) Um, They didn't take God at His word. He said He would provide for them and take care of Him, but they grumbled against Him. They became anxious, and they did what they wanted to do. But secondly, let's think about what makes you escape. Because escapism also is its own form of grumbling. It's saying that I don't like the way things are right now, and so I'm just going to check out. I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. It's too much. I don't like the way that it's heading. I don't I don't like the fact that someone else is in charge of my group project, so I'm just going to act like I'm not that interested. I know all of you are perfectionists, so you love being in charge. It's so hard to actually imagine your group members doing what they said they would do, right? Okay, enough of that. Um, Look, there are obvious ways that people try to escape, you know, drugs and alcohol and like all the stuff that everybody said is bad stuff. Um, but there's actually, I think, some more, uh, some equally dangerous ways that people try to escape. Some of these I think you'll uh, find are pretty socially acceptable. People try to escape all the time by, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, just like looking at your phone every six seconds to see if you might have gotten a new text. Or like if you might have a new notification on Facebook or someone favorited favorite your last tweet or you know any of that stuff. Y'all don't struggle with that? Um, what about checking ESPN just scores all the time that whatever's going on is too much. So I'm just going to retreat to the scoreboard and I'm just going to look at this stuff and I'm going to th- thumb through and read meaningless stats and I'm going to end up in some wormhole of some really meaningless stat. And I'm just going to keep doing it because it's easier to do that than to deal with what life has in front of me. For some of you, you escape on Hulu you escape on Netflix. You escape in porn. Some of you escape in just sitting in front of your computer and shopping for hours and hours. And finding that one thing or reading a certain blog that sends you over to the website where you can get that one thing it's going to fit your figure just right or make you look like the guy you've always wanted to be. These are all ways that we escape. We don't like what life is giving us and so we just retreat. Some of you overeat. Some of you actually turn toward like workaholism, you just keep working because that's easier than dealing with life. Um, What makes you want to escape? What makes you want to do those things? Is it a tough relationship? Is it a grade in a class that seems like it's just too out of control? That there's just too much material for you to do? So, you're like me when I need to finish a sermon, you spend an hour on Twitter. Before you know it, you're like six days back, and it's really embarrassing. Um, what makes you want to just escape? Israel, in this passage, the people of Israel, when they were in that moment, that predicament of, I don't know if God is good, I don't know if He's going to provide for me, they escaped by fantasizing about how things had been. I don't know if you remember in the passage, but it said that they looked back and they grumbled to Moses and to God and said, would that we have would have died in Egypt where we sat around and ate meat pots, whatever those are. <laughs> we sat around and we ate those until we were full. We had so much. Wasn't it awesome when we were in Egypt and now God has us out and He's going to kill us? Like, Are they crazy? They were in slavery. They were getting their backs beat every single day. They were making bricks without straw. It was not good, and yet the, the present trouble had them dreaming about their old life. And some of us do that. Some of us are, are Christians in here, and God has done amazing things in our lives, and has freed us from from guilt of our sin or our shame, and and, and trying to people please, and all these different things that, that we've done or we struggled with in the past more though, more so than we do now. And God's done amazing things in your life, and there are those moments when we're tempted to doubt that He's good, and we say, you know what? It was better when I did that. Or it was better when I was in that relationship. Or it was better when I just got to shop and I didn't have any sort of conviction about that. I got to spend my money where I wanted. We begin to doubt God's goodness and we want to escape. Thirdly though, grumbling looks like anger, and when I get angry. There's a right part of this. Sometimes there's a, there's a thing called righteous anger where um, you rightly look at a situation that is unjust or unfair or wrong and you rightly get angry. You should rightly get angry at sex trafficking. You should rightly get angry that, uh, at the massive injustices in our economic system. You should get really angry when really, really, really rich people don't give a crap about really, really, really poor people. That should make you angry. Jesus gets angry at the right stuff. He walked into the temple, this place that was supposed to be for worship and prayer, and He flipped over the tables because it had become a marketplace. And that made Him angry. But there's so much of the anger we experience that isn't that kind of anger. It's that, I don't think God's given me what I deserve. I think I deserve, I deserve so much better that I'm entitled to something more. After a week of work, um, I I really feel entitled to a day off where I just go home and I don't have any responsibilities. I can do whatever I want. The problem with that is that Sarah looks at that same day, which is Friday for us, and she thinks the same thing. She's like, awesome, Brent's going to be home all day and he'll just take the kids all this time. And uh, so we both end up very angry at the end of that day because we feel like we deserve to do whatever we want for a day, and then we both end up mad because we have kids. That's just how it is. Um, we love our kids. Um, but we're angry and we're frustrated because we don't get what we think we deserve. Some of you finish a hard week of tests or project or something, and you, uh, you want to go retreat and you want to go um, maybe go eat a really nice meal or go out and have drinks with your friends or you're 21, um, or you want to go do something, you feel like you deserve this, and if anything gets in the way of that, like your friends crap out on you in the last minute, you get angry because you deserved it. They don't know what kind of week you had. You don't know where I'm from. Um, you know, And so uh, you get angry about that. Some of you, actually this has happened in your relationship with God, you have followed Him. You have, you know... Jesus I love you and you raise your hands and you sing and all this stuff but it just kind of hadn't quite worked out like you thought it would and your Christian life has been pretty disappointing and you thought you wouldn't still be struggling with some of those things that you struggle with right now and you get that low level drone of anger against God God thought it wasn't supposed to be this way I wasn't still going to be doing this. God was leading the people of Israel into the wilderness in order to shape their faith, in order to bring them to a place where they would trust on Him every single day. They would say, man, I hope there's bread in the morning. God, we're going to trust You. Boom. It was there for 40 years every single day. Instead of it shaping their faith, it was shaping their faith. It was really taking them to a place of unease and discontentment and grumbling. And they even look up at him and say, God, you brought us out here to kill us. They were angry. So what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in this place of grumbling in one of these three ways? Well, one thing that I would encourage you to do instead of just grumbling at God, ask him, I wonder what you're trying to teach me in the midst of this. I wonder wonder why you brought this set of situations about for me right now. What is it that you have for me? Look, God says uh, in Romans 8, as He's speaking through Paul, He says that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. That means that every single thing that happens in your life, the joys, the sorrows, the highs and the lows, the pleasures and the pains are God's way of teaching you something. But He uses even the sin that happens in this world, God uses that stuff sinlessly. He orchestrates it and arranges it in ways where He is not the cause of it, but He uses it to teach us and to work things in our life. His purpose, His will for us. So ask God, what do you want from me in this? The second thing I would encourage you to do in this this situation is to look at the people around you and ask them how it is that they experience your grumbling. If you have good friends, they'll tell you, yeah, you really are not fun to be around when blank happens. Like when you don't get your way, you just kind of start this little pity party tirade thing, and it is not fun to be around. Okay, thanks, that's helpful. You know, do you have anyone who you can ask that to? And if you do, I'd encourage you to. If you don't, um, I'd like to get to know you. I'll tell you, point things out to you. Just after, ask Rebecca. Um, you know, I'll talk to you about what's going on. Because it's good for you to know these things. How you grumble against God. Why, then, would I ever do that? It doesn't sound like very much fun for someone to sit around and point your failures out. Here's why. Here's why we have to do this. It's because grumbling, if left unchecked or untreated, it becomes its own sort of slavery. This low-level discontentment, this, this low-level hmm, in your life begins this cycle, and all of a sudden, you, can't, you don't know what it's like not to grumble. You don't know what it's like not to be discontent about something in your life. It begins this own, its own sort of slavery. So what does God do to curb that grumbling? He provides for us he provides. But he doesn't just provide arbitrarily. God's provision has a purpose. He provides very specifically. And there's two aspects of God's purposeful provision. One is that that actually may look like God withholding something from you. That God's provision may look like that he withholds something that you think you need or you think you should get. The reason that we really struggle with this is that functionally most of us think about god like a slot machine like a cosmic slot machine where you know if we dare pray to him we just throw him up there like we put coins in a slot machine we pull the lever and we hope that at some point i don't know maybe he'll answer something you know so we just kind of keep doing it and, but it's just totally random sometimes he'll answer something sometimes he won't you know for some of you it's really this has been really frustrating and for some of you it's one of the reasons why you really doubt God's goodness. You you really don't want to be in a relationship with Him because either you or people close to you or relatives or friends, they've they've tried to be a Christian. It just didn't really work out for them. That they would pray, they would be really religious and do lots of religious things. They would pull the lever. God, are you you know, when those things stop spinning, are you going to come out all good or what? And sometimes those people in our lives who did those things, they ended up dying. And sometimes those people who did those things, or maybe it's even you, massive tragedy happened. Maybe you were abused. Maybe someone close to you was abused by someone that was really, um, that was really important to you. Uh, and so, God, where are you in the midst of that kind of stuff? Is God just arbitrary? Does he care? Does he even listen to me? If we are ever going to love. Sorry, let me say this. If we're ever going to be able to believe in and follow God, then we need to understand this that for God to give us everything we ask of him would be unloving of him. For God to give us everything we ask of Him would be unloving of Him. In other words, because God loves you, He is not going to give you everything you think you need. That sounds crazy. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Um, April is the month of birthdays in the Corbin house. Uh, along with Easter this year, kind of, it was on March 31st. So we have Easter. Um, Nor Klein our four-year-old, is on April 4th. I'm April 6th. Sarah's April 18th. And Catherine, our two-year-old, is May 2nd. So within like a 30-day period, there's tons of birthdays, which also means there's tons of cake and there's tons of candy. Uh, and on special occasions, there's tons of coffee milk, which is this sugar-laced thing that Sarah's mom started giving our kids, and they love it more than they love us. And so, um, look, because there's so much of this junk around our house right now, our daughters are asking for it a lot. I mean, there's candy everywhere. There's like the big Easter eggs and bunnies in the fridge or the chocolate bunnies in the freezer and all that stuff. And so our kids. It's just ever-present ever right now in our house. They ask for it all the time. Look, because we love our children and we don't want early onset diabetes, we don't give them everything they ask for. Why? Because we are wiser than they are. We know how they are supposed to work. We know what their bodies can handle and not handle. And so we don't do that. That is what it is with God, that He stands outside of space and time. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely good. And because of those things, He doesn't give us everything we ask for because we don't ask for the right things. If I got everything I asked for or prayed for, I would be a spoiled, greedy brat. Self-righteous. You wouldn't want to be around me, I assure you. You may not want to now. You really wouldn't want to then. The Bible says and is always encouraging us to pray and to trust that God's will, what He has in mind, that means when He withholds and when He provides, is better For us, is what's best for us. How can we trust him? Because he is good. He is not like a slot machine. He is not arbitrary in the way that he answers prayer or doesn't answer prayer. He is trying to conform us to what he says was best for us so that we'll ask for the right things. Look, this is why, if you've ever met with me at any point, you've probably heard me, I've probably encouraged you to read the Bible and pray. And I've been very careful to say that is not what makes you a Christian. It is not what makes, makes God love you more or less if you do or don't do that. But the reading the Bible and praying and coming to things like RUF and going to church are really important because what happens as we are reading God's Word is that we are being shaped by it. As I read about what He has said is true in this world and about me and about my story and about my sin, about I begin to get it. And it begins to shape me. And I begin to know that I ought to ask for the right things. Right? And so that's what that relationship is like. It is a learning what I should ask for. I'm conformed more and more in the image of Him so that I can ask for the right things. Okay, so God's provision looks like withholding, but it also looks like giving. Sometimes actually God does give us what we ask for. And that happens in this passage. They were grumbling about food. And now, does God provide for them because they grumbled? No. He provides for them in spite of their grumbling. Why? Because He's good. And He loves to give good gifts to His people even though we sin. Even though we don't deserve any of it. He is gracious and He's good. And He does that. But the provision had a purpose. It was designed to make them rely on Him every single day. He didn't say, hey, here's a month's worth of food. And uh, in a month, you know, come back here and we'll talk again. Because he knew, as well as you and I do, that given that month away, it's like, ah, peace, God, I'm going to go uh, over here and do my thing, and I'll come back to you and pull the lever and hope you give me something. God has no interest in doing that for you. What he wants is for you to rely on him. He wants for you to come to him every single day and say, I need you. I need you today because I'm going to fail today. I'm going to forget what's true about me today. I'm going to forget the gospel today. Look, many years after this story, Jesus came. In his day, he was known as a miracle worker, and he was doing lots of incredible things. I mean, he was healing people who were sick. He was healing people who were lame and deaf and blind and all this stuff. One day, he um, actually on a couple of different occasions, he took just these very meager provisions—a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And he multiplied them and, and made it go to five thousand or more people, and it was amazing. And people were thankful, and they ate and had their fullness, and there was all this food left over. And afterwards, everyone loved Jesus, right? No, they loved the stuff that Jesus gave them. And so the next day, he was across the lake, and they came over there, and they wanted more food. And they wanted more food, and they looked to Jesus, and they said. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They're talking about the story in Exodus. They said, Our fathers, our relatives, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And He is Moses. And Jesus responded and said to them, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they turned and said, Sir, give us this bread always. And what does Jesus say? Meet me here at 3 o'clock tomorrow and I'll do it again. I'll make a big feast. No. He says, I am the bread of life. And that whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And whoever comes to me will never be thirsty again. What's He saying? That that everyday manna that showed up in the morning in the Old Testament was just prefiguring Him was prefiguring our daily need and dependence on the grace of Jesus. Friends, if you are a Christian, there is not a day when you don't need Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, there will not be a day that you aren't called to rely on Jesus. We simply aren't meant to do it on our own. We can't. We will fail. I love when Jesus' does disciples, those closest to Him right? who should have gotten it, they look at Jesus after a while and falling, like, uh, can you tell us how to pray? I love that. And Jesus says, "Yeah, pray like this: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily. Give us, give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread. I promise. I'm a professional pastor. Um, give us this day our daily bread. What is he saying? To be in a relationship with God and to pray to Him is to realize that every single day you'll need Him. Every single day you rely on Him and He has designed it that way. He didn't say, yeah, your camp experience whenever you were three, that's good. I know you, you prayed a prayer then, that's just going to carry forth through your whole life. Or when you sat across the lunch table and someone led you to Jesus, that's good, so you don't have to think about that the rest of your life. No, 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 no. Every single day, We have to realize, we see how much we screw up. We see our sin and our failure. And we're drawn to the cross of Jesus where He paid for that sin and failure. And He offers us hope and He offers us life and righteousness instead. So finally, the plan to remember. God provides purposefully, but then He has a plan in place to help us remember. At the end of this passage, the Lord tells Moses, and then Moses turns around and tells Aaron to take an omer of manna. An omer is like three and a half liters. So think about the big jug, jug of Coke, and it's about that. And then they take that jar, and they're supposed to put it up in the temple where, where the people would come to worship and they would see it. And he says, that put it there so when they come and worship me, they will remember how I provided for them. If you're like me, you need all sorts of reminders. I need reminders all day long. And so if you look at my phone, I'm like 12 deep every single day. I mean everything. Like, don't forget to feed your children. I have to do that when when I'm at home with the kids. Yes. Sad. Um, I'm meeting with this person at 11. I'm meeting with this person at 12. So I have reminders popping up. I need that. I need help. And God knows that's how we are because He looks at them and says, you will need help. You will need to remember this, so put this bread up there so that you will remember. Because we need to see that God is good and we need tangible reminders of that. We have spiritual amnesia. We forget so often God's goodness and how He's redeemed us, how He's rescued us from all the crap He's rescued us from. But we forget it. We see life like a snapshot, like a picture instead of a video. So what do we do about that? Again, we need people close to us. We need people who are around we can ask, and they can tell us, "Look, um, you've forgotten who you are." It's like Rebecca said; she needed people who reminded her that that's not who you are, Rebecca. That's not what's most important about you. Your failure or your, or your success is not what's most important about you. So we need community. We need people. We need we need to read the Bible. It has the story of redemption in it. It has our story built into its story. But also, and this is going to sound so bizarre for some of you, but you actually need to be a part of a church that makes a big deal about the Lord's Supper. And here's why. That the night before Jesus was going to the cross to pay for the sin of the world, He looked at His best friends and said, and He gave them this meal that we now call the Lord's Supper, He shared this with them and said, this bread, this is my body. And it reminds you of what I have done in my life and in my death and in my resurrection. This is my body which was given for you. And then he takes this cup of wine and he says, this blood, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of blood signifying my promises to you. Take, eat, and drink this often. And as often as you do it, you will remember me. And so look, if you are if you're not going to church, I, I would love for you to go to church, and I would love for you to go to a church that takes the Lord's Supper seriously, whether or not you're a Christian. But where you could look at people doing that and say, you know what, they make a big deal about remembering what Jesus has done for them. If the church you're going to doesn't make a big deal about that, I'm not going to say it's like the worst thing in the world, but I just—it's a big. Do- Jesus said it was a big deal. He said, "Do this often, as you remember me." Okay, enough for the weird uh, application. I'm going to finish with this illustration. Um, the movie Cinderella Man, did any of y'all see that? Uh, a boxing story? Oh, shoot. Give me some head nods at least. Okay. Wow. Uh, note to self. Um, <clears throat> okay, in 2005, a movie named Cinderella Man, which was about, uh, it had Russell Crowe, uh, who was a boxer in it. And his, uh, it was actually modeled after a true story of a guy named James Braddock. James Braddock lived during the Depression in the 30s. And he boxes to support his family. In the climactic scene at the end, he's getting ready to fight his, the big fight. And he's fighting a man who has killed other people in the ring. And it kind of starts to feel like warrior a little bit, but it's not. Um, he's killed, which makes me really happy. Uh, but he kills this guy's killed other people in the ring. Just demolished them. And his wife, May, has begged him for a long time to quit fighting. In the locker room before the fight, he's sitting there, he's getting pumped up with his trainer, you know. His trainer's doing his thing, trying to get him all pumped up. I already said it. Um, and his wife walks in, and the trainer and Russell Crowe both look up, and the trainer just doesn't have to say anything. He just walks out. And May walks up uh, to James Braddock, and she says, You can't win without me behind you. You just remember who you are. You're the bulldog of Bergen. You're the pride of New Jersey. You are your kid's hero. You are everybody's hope. You are the champion of my heart, James Braddock." And she gives him a hug. It's unbelievable. Right in that moment, the person who loves him most, the person who he's fighting for, comes and reminds him who he is. And it changes him as he walks out into the ring. Some of you tonight are Christians. And you are fighting all sorts of stuff in your life. There are things that you want to give up. There are things you want to stop doing. There are things you want to start doing. And every one of these things feels like a little battle. And you've been grumbling. You have felt like God has abandoned you I want you to hear the good news of the Gospel because I want you to hear God remind you who you are. You are His beloved son and daughter. He gave up His own son so that you might be adopted into His family. Paul says in Romans 8 later on, He says, how will He who didn't spare His own son, how will He not graciously give you all things? God is going to give you exactly what you need. You need to remember that. We need to remember what that's like. Look, if you're not a Christian or you struggle with the idea of faith or what it looks like to follow Jesus, you are going to experience things in your life that feel like a wilderness also. Where it just doesn't make sense and you can't put together the pieces of why this is happening. And from that place of unbelief, you'll be tempted to look at God from the outside and to grumble at Him. And to shake your fist at Him and say, I can't believe you're doing this, God. I can't believe that you're mean or I can't believe you let that happen to me or my friend or whoever. Would you dare to ask God what He might be doing in the midst of that? Would you dare to think that maybe this wilderness thing that you're experiencing might be God's way of saying, nothing else is going to satisfy you. That apart from me, You will be empty. But that guy or that girl or that purchase or that job or that grade or that resume or that grad school or... Nothing is going to give you hope and joy and satisfaction and meaning except Him. And would you look at what He is offering you? Life. Through His Son Jesus who gave up His life for you. You don't deserve it. You never will. That's it. It's by grace. All you can do is receive it. Let's pray.